welcome to this week's episode of the Deconstruction Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Spiker. I would like to acknowledge that I live and work on the unceded territory of the Seok Nation here in the Okanagan. In this episode, I got to talk to the Decolonized Christian. They are an Instagram handle that seeks to educate people from an anti-colonial perspective on the often overlooked colonial history of Christianity. The page also amplifies post-colonial voices. It is a platform that provides resources to help people, particularly Christians, to begin the journey of decolonizing their minds and their actions so that in turn, they can help decolonize the church. I want to start with a quote that I think sums up this conversation that I had today with the decolonized Christian. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit. When the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past. When faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain. When religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. It's God in Search of Man, a Philosophy of Judaism by Abraham Joshua Heschel. This conversation was good, guys. <laughs> it, it caused um, me to recognize a lot of growth that I have done and where I still have work to do. It was exciting and challenging. We talk a lot about the role white people have in being responsible to decolonize society, church, religion, our narratives we hold, and the way that politics is so deeply ingrained in religion that it's become a bit corrupt. We cover a lot. I hope you enjoy. As always, thank you for your patience and understanding around any technical errors that can happen in this Zoom era we live in. I have been studying this intersection of psychology, spirituality, and society, which I kind of view as like politics for mm-hmm. almost a decade now. And I think that they're so intricately entwined that it's really hard to kind of just focus on one without having to bring the other to the picture. But as of like, I, I personally started to notice it majorly in 2016 that it seemed like spirituality kind of took this like hard religious turn that seemed to me mm-hmm. like really taken away from the good news of the gospel and became a lot more about politics and agendas mm-hmm. and control. I'm really into social justice and fighting for everybody. And I think that spirituality has to be part of that to create healing and unity. And mm-hmm. um, in this intense kind of global political climate, it's getting really hard to do that. And so I'm just meeting with people who I like kind of see as one living their truths in a way, in a way that's like, evidence-based and not just spewing like Mm -hmm. um, emotion-driven opinions um, while fighting like the good fight to start to create um, maybe a little bit more awareness around issues that are super important and I thought you were doing that well obviously your page is (laughs) inspiring to me and so thanks so much yeah oh my gosh so thank you for doing it can you give me a little bit about the backstory like what made you Uh, for the page yeah um well (laughs) Honestly, I started the page on a whim. It was like I was on holidays and I was just, it was kind of in the midst of um, all the Black Lives Matter protests were happening back in June. 
um, I've been kind of on my own deconstruction journey or whatever. Um, I've been on my own journey for a few years. Um, and yeah, I, I just saw the need. I, I was like, I really like want to take it deeper than just, Oh, it's about solidarity with black lives. It's like, it goes so much deeper systemically, especially in a place like Canada where, um, we don't typically see the same kind of violence happening to black people, but we do to our indigenous people. And so, um, that sort of, I just saw that there was a need there and I just started making a few posts and it just came like so quickly and, uh, yeah, it kind of blew up. I wasn't really expecting anything. I just was like, this is something I can do. It's like a fun, a cool project to kind of put what I'm learning into something. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I, it's still, I'm still kind of looking at it, like being like, wow, like, I can't believe this has happened. <laughs> you know? Yeah. My listeners have never looked at your page. Can you give a little bit about what the content is and what the messages you're trying to, to bring across? Yeah, so I'm I'm basically trying to help Christians, especially white Christians, um, know about their colonial history in the West. So um, I, I want to make them aware of uh, things like the doctrine of discovery or manifest destiny that had very Christian roots in them. And then specifically in Canada, we've created laws and also the whole uh, residential school system in Canada has been like a hugely church related or Christian related kind of um, policy and action that was taken. And it's, it's basically a cultural genocide that was done against indigenous people. So um, I'm trying to help Christians kind of be aware of this, like in Canada, the last residential school closed in 1997. And so this is like within many of our lifetimes and uh, a lot of people are just not aware of it. And many denominations were involved in these schools. It wasn't just like one, it wasn't just the Catholic church. They've kind of been the scapegoat in this. Like um, that during World War II, for instance, the Mennonites uh, filled in for people who went to war. And this, which was really an interesting thing because they were nonviolent and they refused to go fight in war, but then they were violent towards indigenous people in these residential school systems, right? are taking part in systemic violence. So that's just another kind of example of uh, yeah, how kind of systemic it is and how ingrained it is within a larger Christian context, both like evangelical and just Protestant and Catholic. Wow, I didn't know that about the Mennonites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned about that only recently too. So um, yeah, and then so for the page itself, um, I kind of, I, I put this on my, uh, on my Instagram like profile, but I, I'm an anti-colonial voice, mm-hmm. but uplifting post-colonial perspectives. So anti-colonial basically means, um, I'm not a post-colonial voice because I am white. I'm from the dominant culture. So, um, I speak to my own culture, right? This is me. You know what I mean? Like I am part of this. And so I, I really tried to um, show people and demonstrate to them that I am actually white, (laughs) you know, that I am actually part of the problem and I'm learning and growing myself. And so, um, yeah. So I offer an anti-colonial voice because I see the harm in my own system and my own, uh, 
worldview and the own my own like faith tradition, right? And I can offer a critique to that system based on that. But then I uplift post-colonial voices. So ideally, I try to um, quote a lot of uh, Black and Indigenous voices and authors and Christian authors specifically, or people who are followers of Jesus. I like to use the followers of the way to describe people who are actually following Jesus versus like a political Christianity that we've seen. Wow. I think that's so important right now. And in this, in this space, it's really important that white people start to really one come to terms with our history rather than be defensive about it, which I think is a really common reaction right now. And then Mm -hmm use our privilege in a way that uplifts others and educates yeah. white people. Exactly. Yeah. And I think for so many people, they just, they aren't aware. And so I think the first step I often say is just becoming aware. And, and that's a process. I mean, that's probably where the deconstruction process happens, right? As, as soon as you become aware of something, it kind of shakes you. It's like, oh, there's what? Like, then you start, it's, it, it's unfortunately such a rabbit hole, but like, um, it's like we need that shaking, you know, we need to be kind of awakened out of our, <laughs> out of what, what we've just kind of taken as like for granted or whatever. And um, yeah, I, I think there's just something so important about that process. And I know it's a very painful process for a lot of people. I know a lot of people just write off their faith altogether or, and like, I, I do not, I am a firm believer that we need to deconstruct all sorts of things, but um, I do not believe that Jesus is one of those things we should be throwing out because he was like a very, well, he was actually a post-colonial voice. Like he was in a colonized area of Palestine in his day, right? By a Roman empire that was brutal. They were the, they were the economic superpower of the day. And so he's literally a post-colonial voice in that empire. Yeah, I think when we realize that and we put Jesus into his socioeconomic context, uh, there's just so much there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't help but think he'd probably be leading BLM movements where he alive right now. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. You said something super important at the beginning about that awakening and that need to be kind of jarred out of our existence. And even from like a psychological point of view our behaviors and our thoughts get so ingrained in our brain that they become habitual and unless Mm -hmm. we do something that intentionally steers us another way or interrupts that cycle we won't change we won't creatures of habit and so that awakening or that like you said awareness is the first key insight is that first key to deconstruction Mm -hmm. really important and then i love that you mentioned how how painful deconstruction can be like mm-hmm. personally, my deconstruction has been going on since I first left my kind of really rigid, fundamental Christian denomination mm-hmm. at 18 and then really had to be like, okay, this is so unhealthy. I see the teaching doctrine of shame, of doctrine of fear, doctrine of control. I've been mm-hmm. basically brainwashed since I was a kid that God is this, blah, blah, blah. So then I had to like really take time away to be like, what do I believe and why do I believe it? Not because I've been yeah. to. And then the next one happened when I was like 25 and it can be such a hard process because you lose your community. Mm -hmm. You lose like a foundation that kind of gives you purpose and meaning for everything around you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to keep being so negative because it sounds pretty scary, but like for me, it was the most important mm-hmm. thing in the world and it gave me freedom to expand in a way mm-hmm. that's been really important for my faith journey, my spiritual journey to a place where I now feel like more closer to my ideal of God than ever before, even if that looks different from the box that I was kind of raised in. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think what you said is so important. There's something so freeing about the deconstruction process and expanding and growing and learning and being challenged and all that. But also there's something so painful about it. You lose, you might lose community. You might lose relationship with um, even family members or other friends or people who haven't grown and haven't changed in the same way you have. Right. And I think that's a process we can't rush through, you know, that's a, you know, I I think uh, we need the time to grieve. We don't, we don't do grieving well. I don't think Mm -hmm. in our, in our Western context, Mm -hmm. I think um, we need to spend some time actually sitting and wrestling with that. And, I know it can be tough because like, even for my page, like I think like I'm often trying to prod people to get active or get involved in things. And I'm, you know, sometimes that's not always the most helpful thing to do right away because we need to actually process our grief first before we can move into something, you know? And I mean, I look at even the life of Jesus again, he, you know, he didn't start his ministry until he was like 30 years old. You know, and then he spent 40 days in the desert you know, before he was out healing people and doing stuff. It's like he had to wrestle through his own internal stuff before he could just, you know, go and save the world or whatever, you know. Yeah, there's definitely a message of patience and process. deconstruction now or going after going through your deconstruction phase what what your spirituality looks like and why you think it's so important other than you know obviously you're moving from our colonial roots which have been historically so mm-hmm. damaging. yeah what is what does it look like well I honestly I can truly say I've never been more passionate about Jesus like I am just enthralled with who Jesus is um yeah I've like just through expanding beyond mainstream evangelical theology, realizing how much there is out there, like how not central evangelical theology is in the greater context of global Christianity and Christian history. Like it's just a small, tiny speck that somehow become huge, like globally, but it's not central. And so I've, part of what I've been doing is, really trying to draw from other traditions. So Eastern tradition, um, indigenous theology specifically. Um, I've just, there's so many connections between the Eastern church and indigenous theology and beliefs. So I've been just really enthralled by some of that. Um, and then just with, with my walk with God, I guess um, I'm actually still in a local church. So I still work as a, as a music pastor. And, but in regards to worship, um, I think getting outside of that mainstream evangelical idea of music being worship, I've been really, um, and actually my church as a whole has been really good with this, but we've been trying to move in a more liturgical direction or in more of a kind of embodied kind of direction where it's like, 
we're participating in communion each week and we're um, confess, confessing sin and like doing these kind of liturgies that are more embodied and more like it's, there's more to it. You actually have to do something kind of thing. And I'm just finding that like really enriching and it's just so helpful. Yeah, I'm really about embodied theologies because I think Mm. historically prioritized, um, I say this word a lot, but cognitive supremacy, where we Mm -hmm. know therefore we're right or we're wise or we're good when (laughs) it has to be an integration of head knowledge and knowledge. And I think that those more traditional, almost ritualistic um, practices within the church kind of bring you into connection more with your body than just mental Mm -hmm mental thoughts totally and i think like what you just described too is like in our in our western world we are so um caught up and so like influenced by modernity and rationalism so like descartes said i think therefore i am and he kind of separated soul from body right and like honestly christianity mainstream evangelicalism especially looks a lot more like Descartes and <laughs> rationalism than it does Jesus because it's all about right thinking. It's all about like thinking the right, believing the right beliefs and thinking the right things and creating the correct doctrines. And that's somehow what Christianity has become. It's become like a bunch of ideals <laughs> rather than actually living it out in the world, you know? Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's so frustrating to see like, even especially like, in the Western church, but just this divide between like the social, social justice gospel and the, you know, the believe gospel or whatever, you know, there's this like two streams of church and they can't like seem to come together when it's like, it's like both. It's like, that's what embodiment is. It's supposed to be both. And yet like they just demonize each other and it's super, super frustrating. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point. I think about Descartes and the influence he left on us and Western thought um, a lot because I think that we can really see that being being the beginning of dualistic thinking. Yeah, We're so dualistic right now. There's right and there's left. There's good and there's bad. There's, you know. Yeah, there's Christian and there's non-Christian. <laughs> yes, yeah, heaven and hell. And <clears throat> yeah. um, I think that's causing a lot of damage. And unless we can become more holistic and integrated, we're going to continue mm-hmm. to just keep spreading the divide yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i think if we're honest we're all somewhere in but like we're never not just one thing you know like we're never not just (laughs) even you talk to the staunchest conservative that is out there you know and a lot of them are like there's something that (laughs) something in their belief system that would probably be seen as left-wing and you flip it on the other side too and there's like you know, you, uh, you can find the same from someone who's probably very even socially minded and they would probably hold to something that was more considered a traditional belief. Like I know a lot of very socialist sort of minded people that are, for instance, um, anti-abortion, right? So that, and which is seen as a very right-wing thing. So, you know, it can, (laughs) we're a lot more fluid than these categories put us or make us, you know? Yeah, we really are a lot more fluid. And I think sort of on that train of thoughts, what made me want to start this podcast is the fact that I was able to, like I've been through my journey or going through my journey and 
processing a lot of really intense egoic reactions, usually manifesting mm-hmm. in anger towards, you know, like I'm, I'm very left wing and I'd get mm-hmm. angry at the right being like, how can you think this way? You're like brainwashed into a cult by a dictator. Like <laughs> yeah. you're letting the world down and it's embarrassing <sighs> and really, really intense reactions. And then I was able to recognize like, I'm literally hating on the right with so much anger because they hate us with so much anger. And it was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm looking in a mirror and I really need to process this and figure out how we can bridge that divide and recognize the humanity inherent worth in all of us. Yeah. Uh, And again, that dualistic thinking of I'm on this side and I'm right. You're on that side. You're wrong. Because Mm -hmm. as again, a psychologist, everything I view from my reaction is just a projection that like all of my responses are my internal projections on someone else. So if they're making me mad, that's something in me and I need to address that. And it's really hard. And sometimes I don't want to do that and I just want to be angry, but yeah, totally growing. Yeah. It is part of the process of growing. And um, yeah, (laughs) I think again, right. Like our world loves, this is where the media is a problem too, right? Like they love, love to, they love to stir things up. They love to stir the pot because that's what, you know, creates, that's how they make money. <laughs> that's capitalism, right? Like, you know, I, when I found out that the same um, person owned one of the, I can't remember what networks they are in the States, but there's a, the person who owns one of the biggest left-wing networks also owns one of the biggest right-wing, like far right-wing networks. And they create that divide intentionally because it creates money for them at the top, right? So. And I mean, that makes me so mad, but also when you can recognize that is like, that is just a truth. You can go Google who owns things and you realize it's all just like a facade and then mm-hmm. not to be like conspiratorial or anything. But the fact that like, just, the majority of the population mm-hmm. are fighting each other is very beneficial for a certain group of people that benefit off us not yeah. focusing how they're kind of destroying the earth and stealing all of our resources and totally wealth. <laughs> totally. And you know, like that's, that's exactly like, and I know some people get on the whole conspiracy bandwagon, but the reality is like capitalism fuels that stuff, right? Like it, you know, if, if you can get, people distracted on a bunch of conspiracy theories it keeps the people at the top making a ton of money without any critique right and that's like to me so much part of the problem right because we're there's there's literally people essentially stealing all the resources i mean how the top 30 or what is it the top 10 billionaires in america got 30 percent richer since the start of covid it's like while like the bottom 40%, you know, drastically lost a bunch of income and are like on food stamps. It's like, how is this just, right? How is this right? And yet conspiracy theories have blown out of proportion since the start of COVID. And everyone's talking about that and not talking about what we should be talking about. And that's the economic disparity between the rich and poor that's growing like crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. It's very concerning to me. And um, really problematic how they use almost like how I view it as they're using or they're they are profiting profiting off this social justice movement by creating and fueling this polarizing anger towards each other as like a smoke and mirrors mm-hmm. as they um so rich like you're talking about yeah so I see capitalism as being a core component of colonialism yeah 
can you talk a little bit about what decolonization means to you and how as white people we can start moving forward in either religion or just life mm -hmm. in a way that's not continuing to perpetuate the damages that we as colonizers have historically done or continue to do. Yeah. Yeah, so there's so much in that question. It's loaded. Um, <laughs> it is a big question. Um, I guess I'll first, first off start by saying Jesus talks more about money than any other topic. Hmm. So he teaches more about money and wealth and like, well, economic disparity than any other topic in the Gospels. And so if Jesus cares about money, clearly like there's something there, right? He was, you know, he feeds 5,000 people. Why does he have to feed 5,000 people? Oh, because they're hungry, right? Like there's people are following him around because they're hungry and not just spiritually hungry, but actually physically hungry. Like the Romans were taxing so many people to the point that they didn't have food to eat. You know, like they lived in a colonized society that they didn't have basic rights that most familiar. People, exactly. And I mean, then you look at today's Indigenous people here, and there's reserves here in Canada that have not had clean drinking water for entire generations, and there's a growing number of them. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like, what would Jesus be saying to this, right? Well, what would he be saying, <laughs> right? And then when it comes to colonialism, one of the things that really um, kind of perpetuated the problem is well, it was land theft, right? Mm. And so it's, and then with how it ties into capitalism is that we've capitalized off the land, like financially, right? And so we buy and we sell land and that has, well, it's all been stolen land for, for one. And, you know, and like, I mean, you just look at the housing market today. I know in here in Canada, it's absolutely crazy how like, and I, like where, where I live right now, it's, in the last 10 years, the housing prices have doubled in 10 years. And I know like in other parts of the world, it's very similar. And, you know, in, uh, throughout the world, 90% of the best lakefront property globally is owned by white people. And that's like another thing that is like very eye opening, and I'm just very aware of. Right. Yeah. And so, this all roots back to or connects back to the doctrine of discovery, which was, it was a papal bull. So the, the Pope wrote it in the 1400s, basically said that land could be discovered on behalf of God. So Christians could discover land for God. It's convenient. And so, well, exactly, right? Because there's been people living here for 30,000 years. They've got records going back even further in some communities here. And, to say that only 500 years ago we discovered this land while well, this land has been lived in and inhabited in for way longer than you know even Europe has been you know yeah so it's it's uh, totally unfair and totally unjust that we could use the bible and use god to justify stealing land and colonizing so um and then i guess I, I quote a lot of a guy named, I like to quote a guy named uh, Willie Jennings, who talks about um, property development and how like we, we've created segregated spaces just through living and through how we've designed our, well, our living spaces. Mm -hmm. In America, this is very prominent, right? Where they've got a lot of segregation, where 
there's a gentrification of areas where they come in and they uplift a certain area, but then it becomes too expensive for people to, who are currently there to stay there and everything's getting a facelift. And so they have to leave because it's just too expensive for them and they get pushed out. Mm. And, um, you know, he's, he says like, we need to start as Christians in the church. What he would love to see is the property developers and the people who are, um, creating shared, like our communities, they need to be made famous. He's like, we need to know who all the property developers are because they actually dictate the vast majority of how our lives are going to look. Like they create, you know, they create communities, they create living spaces. And if they are creating those spaces for profit and for segregation or for like a certain economic divide, then that greatly affects all of us. Hmm. And so we don't, we think we should have a say in what those kind of shared community spaces look like. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I've become like super passionate about as well. I think absolutely we should be creating and designing areas where there's thriving and, um, well, and just benefit for everyone in the area and in the community. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's a really good point. And I think that if we start putting Indigenous peoples in those roles, and I mean, obviously we're partnership, but I think respecting the fact that we are on their land and giving them more autonomy over the development of that land, Mm -hmm. just sort of as a joke, but not really like white people have lost their chance. (laughs) (laughs) Exploited and destroyed and ruined and you mm-hmm. perpetuated segregation and economic divide. Like we need to realize that we are in the late stages of capitalism. What we're doing isn't working. And how do we start moving forward in a way that's more holistic, embodied, community focused and sustainable? Totally, totally. And like, it, that's what's so interesting too, is indigenous voices are key. Like they're, they're key globally. Like, yeah. When it comes to vo- a voice for even the planet and how to uh, kind of move forward with climate change and all the problems that that's brought, you know, they are forerunners and mm. like we can actually, they, they know what to do. You know, they, they know the cycles of the earth. They, they are so connected to nature and they have an incredible solution moving forward. And I, I mean, we've exactly, you've said white people, we've had our chance and we've, <laughs> we've pillaged the earth, you know, of its resources. We've seen the earth as something to be exploited and they see the earth as something to be cared for and something to be nurtured that actually will in turn nurture us and care for us. And I absolutely believe we need to be following them and listening to them and it's, our time is up, you know, <laughs> we need to sit back, we need to listen and just be like, okay, yeah. Yeah, I think we as white people collectively need to humble ourselves a little bit, stop living from this place of, I, I hate using this word because it's such a triggering word for people, but supremacy. We really yeah. do believe that we are the end all and be all of greatness. And I know mm-hmm. that's, that's super generalized and that'll offend a lot of people. But in, if we look globally or even just Western culture, like it's just a fact. Yeah. So how do we humble ourselves or deconstruct our beliefs in such a way that it benefits everybody? 
not just yeah. the new profit-driven materialistic ideals that have been ingrained in us as important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we need to become very good listeners, <laughs> you know, slow to speak and slow to act, well, quick to act, but um, first listen and first um, let other people lead without us, you know. We can become allies, but again, I think that's the difference between being a white savior and being an ally, right, is, you know, our time is kind of up, like we've said, and um we get to participate in like, you know, it's, it's open for all, right. We can, we can be part of the solution, but I don't think we can lead that solution. Mm. You know, I don't think it's our job. Like, I don't think we even have the right to do that. So. Yeah. That feels important. And I'm sure right with energetic uh, emotions. Some people will take that as they do. And, Mm-hmm. I I really do agree. I think that it's important that we start boosting the voices of the ones who've really, really been leading this social justice movement, this global um, save the world, protect the resources, well, like heal the world, I guess. Mm-hmm. So where does Christianity fit into this for all of you? Where does Christianity fit in? Um <laughs> I think Christianity is, yeah, Christianity has a lot, there's a lot, that's a tough question. How do I think of this? Where does Christianity fit in? I think Christianity at its very best has, is good news. It's, Hmm. it is good news, especially to the poor, especially to those who've been pushed to the margins, especially the overlooked. Um, And I think it's bad news in a lot of ways <laughs> to the oppressors, right? We have to, we have, that's part of, that's why so many of us oppressors have to go through a deconstruction pay, uh, phase, right? Because we've, what we've believed to be good news isn't actually good news for everyone. And we have to wrestle with the fact that we've actually been feeding people a lot of bad news. And if the gospel is actually good news, then we need to, grapple with what we've done and the kind of gospel that we've been fed and even what you know like things like the american dream or um different you know our our desire for money and wealth and prominence and fame i think fame is a huge one right like we chase these things and we can package it all up with christianity but really when you center christ Right when you center Jesus in this whole thing that we call Christianity, right? When Jesus is actually central, then everything else kind of fades away. And I think in a lot of ways, centering Jesus is going to push us into that deconstruction phase where we realize, okay, yeah, we've been we've been totally misled, and we need to do some soul searching. We need to work within ourselves and actually wrestle with um, our own beliefs and what we've believed to be true. Um, and so Christianity, I think, I believe the way of Jesus is absolutely foundational to moving forward because he, again, speaks to a system of power. He speaks to economic disparity. He speaks a message that is intentionally very, very good news to poor people. And he's quite harsh on systems that oppress. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he goes into a temple system and he flips a bunch of tables because he says they're robbing the poor, right? They're capitalizing in the temple on poor people and using the sacrificial system to capitalize on that. Yeah. Right. And so like even a political reading of that account, you know, uh, is so important because, um, yeah, Jesus is dealing like, I, I think that's what really what got Jesus killed in the end, right? Like this is just a few days before his crucifixion and the, the religious leaders didn't like it. And then the Romans didn't like it either because, you know, he's causing a disturbance. He's a disturber of the peace, especially during the Passover week, which was already, they already, uh, it's like the Roman police are basically out in full force during that time. So, um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of parallels there. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. There's a lot of parallels. And I think that when you say that at the core, the gospel is good news. And we can see that it has not been good news for vast majority of people. It's been used to shame and to control and to exploit all those things you've been saying. And Jesus really was a threat to the status quo. And that was uncomfortable for the powers that be because it threatened one, their power and their money. Mm-hmm. The other day I heard William Matthews, who if you're a music yeah. guy, you probably know who that is. Yeah, He's yeah. a very prominent musician that left one of the bigger churches in America or one of the more popular ones right now. I don't want to say the names, but he was talking about how Jesus, when he went into the desert for 40 days, one of the temptations that he had was to be offered power. And he refused that. And he's like, the church today has not refused that. It has given in to this temptation of power and money. And that's so fundamentally against the core of Jesus's message that to me, I'm just like, is whatever this Christian religion worth saving right now? Because it's just corrupt at the core. It feels like it's power driven. It's money driven. It's control driven. And That's what started the damaging message is control over. Yeah, totally. And that's like going into this. I know this is another kind of rabbit hole, but the book of Revelation is, in my opinion, specifically a critique of empire. Like it's to be read as do you follow Jesus or do you follow Caesar? Right. And as soon as Christianity was imperialized and co-opted by Caesar, right? Like this is Constantine as soon as that happened is kind of the day that Christianity, like at least in the way that it was a Jesus way, right. Following Jesus, it kind of died in a lot of ways. Like as soon as, as soon as it was imperialized, suddenly it's being used to prop up an empire. And then, then since then you see a whole bunch of atrocities from, you know, the crusades to the, the inquisition to, colonialism to uh, even the Holocaust, right? I mean, all of these things were very much tied to Christianity, mm-hmm. but it's Christianity um, intertwined with empire. Yeah. And now we see that today, right? We see that with the Trump phenomenon. We see that with, I mean, even, even in Joe Biden's recent inaugural uh, speech and everything, so much Christian nationalism, even on the left in America, and it's like, I mean, we wouldn't even we wouldn't even have that kind of Christian lang- like Christian lingo and stuff in our Canadian 
uh, inaugurations of our own prime ministers, like there's so much Christian nationalism embedded in America and that, and, and it's completely bipartisan, you know, it's not just one side or the other. And this is exactly the danger. I mean, we could, because of the strength of Christian nationalism in the States, we could easily see a left wing dictator like figure come up as well, just as easily, I think. Maybe not just as easily, but it could happen, you know? I like what you said, Christianity is used to prop up an empire. And are we ever seeing that in America? If you think about all of the big political issues, uh, abortion, LGBTQ2 plus rights, like these are what I know so many Christian or Republicans are basing their choice of a leader on, which is Mm -hmm. just baffling to me, under the rouge of, Christianity and it's Mm -hmm. like uh, if your God hates the same people you hate you might be worshiping an idol totally totally like isn't it ironic that uh, your enemies just so happen to be God's enemies Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like talk about fitting God into a box right and it's like you know and, and that takes away that that influences how we read and interpret scripture right because if we already come to the the Bible or we already come to a passage and we have a preconceived idea of God being on our side and for us and nobody could be against us because I'm right. You know, suddenly it's like, you've already, you're going to misunderstand. You're not, you're not going to let the scriptures, you're not going to be able to see or allow the scriptures to speak to you in the same way. Right. Like it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's so much to be said about the worldview and the frame of mind we bring before we even open up the scriptures, Yeah, you know, to allow us to actually, like, and I mean, we all have a bias, like every single one of us, if we're honest, are we bring our experience to the scriptures before we even do, you know, I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate what Richard Rohr says about his uh, tricycle of um, just when it comes to uh, to faith and spirituality, you know, but he puts, he puts experience as the front wheel because he's like, if we're just being honest, that's, that's what it is. We, we all have an experience and we all have a bias. And so, but we shouldn't write that off, but we should be aware of it. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's so important when approaching scripture, knowing that we come with a bias and that's why it's like so valuable to learn outside of well, specifically white evangelicalism, right? We need to understand how other people, how do people of minorities or how do indigenous people or, you know, how do former slaves interpret interpret this passage of scripture? Yeah, you know? yeah. It's like in social media, we understand that we get put in this feedback loop echo chamber of our own opinions coming to us via algorithms, but we don't apply mm-hmm. that as well to real life when really we do live and breathe through the lens of whatever is surrounding us. And oftentimes that's our community. And when you're in a really rigid or religious environment, that's going to feed into creating your lens. Mm-hmm. And I think the first step of creating an expansive, again, integrated view of the world is that awareness of the fact that, okay, I'm, I'm in a, Mm-hmm. a circle of people that are feeding into my worldview which isn't inherently bad at all but it's important that we realize that does not mean it's reality it means it's our reality but that yeah. isn't universal exactly and 
I think, um, yeah, you touched a little bit on, on that. I think an integral view is so important. You know, uh, I recently read a book called Trump and a Post-Truth World by a guy named uh, Ken Wilber. And wow, is that book ever good. <laughs> I highly recommend it to anybody who's kind of dealing with some of this stuff. But he talks about postmodernism and even hard right-wing, or sorry, hard left-wing movements. And he says, um, he just talks about the importance of having an integral view, especially as it pertains to, well, like things like spiral dynamics. Um, that's a whole lot of information I don't really have time to go into. But essentially, <laughs> um, we all have different stages of growth and development. That's normal. We're all born into a world and we start at a very low stage. And that's just part of human development and part of growth. And postmodernism has become the leading edge of that growth. And unfortunately, what it has done is it has created so much. There's a lot of really good about it, right? We need more perspectives than just one perspective, but it's also created a lot of false narratives because people can say, I can choose, pick and choose what my truth is, right? Where um, now we see how problematic that is with fake news and with all the different stuff, even social media based off of a postmodern view is feeding our narcissism because it's all based on our specific bias, right? And so how do we get back to truth, right? Well, and without ignoring other people's perspectives, right? And that's where an integral view is so important, right? We, we can integrate like we can, we can know that my truth, like the way I see things in my worldview is just that it's, it's a worldview. It's a perspective. It's a lens. I see the world through and there's other lenses we need to uphold. But at the same time, there are harmful lenses. We cannot look through the lens of someone like Hitler. Like we should not, you know what I mean? That that's not a truth that we should be upholding and living by. Right. And unfortunately we've seen such a rise in neo-Nazism and, other movements and right now and this is all because we've been giving an equal platform and social media allows for it right mm -hmm. it's they've been given an equal platform and that's problematic and so the integral view um sees the truth and the good in all the different stages of in of development right and it recognizes we we can all um even go back to some of those stages, right? And, and that's really important. Like there's good in every single one of those stages. It's so important to human development. And, um, but yeah, we need to move beyond a postmodern framework because it's the word he used, the word he uses or the phrase he uses in the book is it's, it's just a perspectival madness. <laughs> it just creates a, a divide where people create their own narratives and that's a hugely problematic thing. So, um, and I think that's something specifically about Christianity. That's so well about Jesus. That's so important is that he is, I believe a foundation that is, it transcends all places and spaces and time, right? Like it's so foundational to everything. It's so, um, uh, he speaks so much truth, especially truth to power, right? That we can, we can look and we can see like even the different socio 
political perspectives of his day. Like there's so many views. There's so many, like some, one of his followers was a zealot, right? Um, someone who was basically an insurrectionist who wanted to take out Caesar and raise up an army and destroy the Romans, right? And set themselves up as <laughs> the rule. But they would become the new Caesar, right? And I, again, in the desert, like you were saying, what Mil William Matthews was talking about with power, right? Like in the desert, I believe that's exactly what Jesus had to fight that temptation, right? He had to fight the temptation to wield a sword and go take out Caesar, right? And become the seat of power, right? But, you know, it, it's, uh, that's what he had to overcome, right? And yeah, I, I think, I think, again, we just see so much grounding in Christ. We see so much. Yeah, he's, Rob Bell talks about the base notes of society, like something that resonates. It's, that's Christ, you know? Christ is like the base note that we can put a firm foundation on, that we can build off of, that we can, you know, he says, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you know? And I really believe that that is true. Yeah, we can, we can follow him and we can trust him in that. If you had to summarize the universal truth of Jesus's message that you believe holds true, no matter time or space, what would that be? Because like, I... I'm not a Christian. I'm very spiritual. I have, I believe mm -hmm. sort of in the hysterical, hysterical, historical man of Jesus, but I believe that mm. his teachings are phenomenal and that they do offer life, except that they've been exploited and reinterpreted totally. Western white lens. So if you could just like summarize for maybe people who are like really anti-Christian, anti-religion, like, no, this is damaging. What is that true good message that you think is perpetuated through Jesus's life and writings? Mm -hmm. That's really good. I think, honestly, I don't think, well, first of all, I'll say this. I don't think Jesus came to start another religion. He was Jewish. He was very practicing Jewish. Like he was as Jewish as they came. He was a rabbi, right? Um, yeah, I don't think Jesus was trying to get people to come and specifically worship him. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't, he was asking people to follow him, right? He was saying, come follow me, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, so much damage, like you said, has been done by Christianity. And, you know, and it's uh, the only reason I'm not ready personally to get rid of the the term Christianity is because that's unfair to the global movement of the, the church, the global, like I think the Eastern traditions, um, some of these other traditions, it's not fair to write off Christianity based on mainstream evangelicalism. You know, I am ready to toss out mainstream evangelicalism. Like I don't think that is helpful at all. I think it's, very imperial it's very intermingled with americanism with colonialism with uh you know all the isms that are damaging it's not it's not helpful um but <clears throat> trying to think of yeah with when it comes to jesus i think there's something about his message that is so it, it transcends not just um, 
not just our lenses, but like it is, there is a universal lens to it. Like it transcends other religions. It transcends other cultures. Like, and you can see it like when you see spirit move, right. You can recognize it, you know, like, um, I think of, uh, someone like Gandhi, he studied the sermon on the Mount every day of his life, basically, you know, he meditated on it all the time. He wasn't a Christian at all. Like he didn't profess to be one, but he was absolutely enthralled by the teachings of Jesus. And he believed in the way of Jesus in that regard, right? He believed that these teachings actually were so monumental and had so much power in them and so much liberation in them. I think liberation is a huge word that we don't use. It's being used a lot in some circles, but it's not being used enough in, um, I, I think a lot of really conservative evangelicals are afraid to use that word, right? It's just a fancy word basically for deliverance. But liberation is, there's something about Christ that's so liberating for people. The real tangible good news of Christ that does transcend all cultures and spaces and places, you know? And it's not about the liberation, the liberating message of Jesus is not about saying or believing the right things or saying some sort of prayer that gets you, you know, saved or something. It's not about that at all, but it's about um, living, living in a way that is um, freeing and in a way that is, uh, well, especially good news to those who are most marginalized and oppressed in our midst. And so a lot of the Old Testament prophets, for instance, are very much, they're like the early, they're like the liberation theologians. Like they're the, the people speaking truth to power. They're saying, they're holding their leaders in, in, in account, right? They're keeping them accountable and saying, look, you are marginalizing people and you're using the name of God to do it, <laughs> you know? And this is, this is not good, <laughs> right? And I think that's where even Jesus comes and does the same. You know, he, he speaks, you know, he says, uh, you know, Roman propaganda of the day was they would go into a region and they would defeat, you know, Caesar's armies would defeat a, a conquered people or whatever. Then finally they'd surrender. And then Caesar would like basically have his army say to them, good news, you will be saved if you confess with your mouth that Caesar is Lord, mm. right? And it's like the the term that they basically used for good news was gospel. It's like, so this is the gospel of Caesar. <laughs> you know, the good news of Caesar is that we won't kill you if you confess that Caesar's Lord and pay him his his taxes and you submit to Rome, basically, Right? And then the, what is it, Mark 1, 1, probably one of the most political verses of the Bible says, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's all it, all it says, just Mark 1, 1, right? And son of God, again, was a term that Caesar preferred for himself. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, who, who, who is Lord? Yeah, who is Lord? Jesus or Caesar? Whose way do you want to follow? Jesus or Caesar, right? And so there's like so much there. Um, 
And so in that regard, like in a political reading of Jesus, I think, you know, um, I've read some authors who see Jesus as just primarily a, a political figure. And they're not even, they don't profess to be necessarily Christians or anything, but they see him as just a, an incredible, incredible, like revolutionary political figure. Like revolutionary, right? yeah. Yeah, he absolutely was, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think um, that's where Jesus specifically, like the universality of Jesus has so much to offer our world, whether or not we believe whatever we believe about Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's so much there. So your good news of Jesus would be about equality and taking down oppressive systems mm-hmm. that keep others marginalized while others are glorified yeah. in unhealthy yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah, I think that exactly. is a good message for this time of mm-hmm. immense social justice movement where we're realizing that the divide between equality is so vast that we need to start making amends to that. And I think totally that puts white people in the place of being responsible for reparations. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just convinced that uh, yeah. In Jesus, we, we see, you know, he, he was one of the first humanists in my opinion. Like I think he was someone who was so passionate about, feeding the hungry, you know, I mean, a lot of the miracles we see in scripture, you know, whether or not they literally happened or not, I think is kind of beside the point, you know, the real miracle is that through his teachings and through what he did, you know, suddenly you've got a guy who's a tax collector giving four times of his wealth, four times as what he's stolen from people back to people, you know, you've got people who are just being transformed by spending time with him, you know, and there's, that's, that's like the real miracle in that sense, right? People who are realizing like my, my life is not all about power and greed and wealth and hoarding. Mm -hmm. Real life comes from human flourishing. Yeah. And I think that's so important because one of the problems I have with capitalism is that while we're the most abundant society, we live from a place of poverty and scarcity mm. of like, this, if, if I share, there's not enough for me and I need to hoard. So I have enough rather than that yeah. um, collectivist mentality of if I thrive, I want others to thrive. And that really is kind of what you're saying is that like that encounter with God encounter with goodness creates transformation that benefits everyone. Yeah. Not one person. Yeah. I think that that whole scarcity model is, <laughs> And sadly, so many Christians are stuck in that model, right? It's like, I need to get my share of the pie before the, all the pie runs out. Yeah, and then right? we have things like, a, a, oh my gosh, what is the term? Abundance teachings or whatever. Mm-hmm. What is that Christian term where they teach prosperity teachings? Prosperity. Oh, yes. Yeah, prosperity gospel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, there's you're so much because you're a millionaire. It's like, yeah, yeah I'm not thinking it's money and prosperity can be good, but like also that can't be your motivation for. No, no. And um, maybe allow me to, I'll talk a little bit about this, but I think one of the, probably the biggest old Testament scholar that exists is his name is Walter Brueggemann. He's a, he's kind of a legend in, well, especially in seminary circles, but he teaches about, the difference between pharaoh economics and abundance 
And so like what he especially talks about in the Exodus story, right? He, uh, uh, he goes actually back into Genesis first, right? He says, he talks about like the story of Joseph where Joseph is sold as a slave into Egypt and, um, you know, he rises up and becomes second in command. Well, there's a fan, like, you know, what are they doing during those first seven years of like when there's a lot, right? They're hoarding the wealth, <laughs> he sets up a system. Joseph literally sets up a system where Egypt is hoarding the wealth so that everyone has to come to Egypt. Right. And then what happens? <laughs> They're enslaved in Egypt, the people, right? Suddenly they become sla- They become part of a superpower, right? They become, and that's, that's essentially what hoarding is, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you are storing up in giant grain silos all the food when that food could be equally distributed to everyone so that you're not hoarding it. But of course you're capitalizing on all the food. Yeah. You're capitalizing on their dependency. Exactly. And so that's like what happens when the ancient Israelites are led out of in the story, right? Led out of Egypt is like God is undoing this Pharaoh economic system that they've been so ingrained in and so trapped in. You know, they've been, it's just, there's so much in this story. It's phenomenal. Anyway, it's like, they've basically been slaves. They've been told that they are human doings, not human beings, right? And then when Moses asks the name of God, he says, I, I am. Like, being itself, literally, you know, existence itself, right? And this God who is existence or being itself is bringing them out of this system where all they've known is work. All they've known is production or a Pharaoh economics who's capitalizing on their production. Right. Yeah. That's so, and they come into the desert, right. And they have to unlearn all that stuff. And that's why they start practicing the Sabbath day. They start, um, so many of their laws and the things that they learn are actually based on undoing this economic system of this way of life that they've been so entrenched in. What a timely message as we're all in quarantined and really being mm-hmm. what makes us worthy because yeah. suddenly what we used to find identity in such as jobs or going out is, is taken from us and we're left with that Mm -hmm. exact thing you said. I'm like, okay, are we human doings or beings? And is me existing in this present I am enough? And Mm -hmm. of course, like, I believe it is, but we're really forced into this situation where we have to decide that or not. And it's causing a lot of meltdowns, but I think needed ones. It's like we're earlier that jarring, abrupt awakening that brings us out of our habitual mind patterns and beliefs. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think this is a very timely message, especially with COVID, with a lot of uncertainty. You know, we can rest in the fact that, you know, we are human beings. You know, we don't, we don't have to, our performance doesn't dictate who we, you know, I, obviously there's something about like what we do that influences who we are, but it's not who we are, you know, at the core and that I think is so important. And that is like, you know, I see that I see the work of, you know, counselors and therapists and, 
they're doing so much in helping people even discover that part about themselves because people haven't even been allowed to experience that in so many ways in our in our society and again that's because we live we've built another pharaoh economic society right our society runs on what we do and production yeah and as soon as someone's not productive anymore like how how often do we feel guilty when we're resting Mm-hmm. Like we, we say, oh, oh, I'm being lazy. And I, I'm, I'm personally, I'm guilty of this all the time. I do it all the time. And it's like, well, no, like that's not, you know, we, we need to be able to rest. We need to be able to have a rhythm to life where we do work, but then we rest. Mm-hmm. Right? And that is so healthy and so important. And I think it's so key to undoing so much of the economic disparity we see in our world, undoing so much of the injustice. You know, at the very heart of the Israelite system that they built in the desert was this economic practice called Jubilee. I don't know if you've heard of the year of Jubilee, but yeah, so every 50 years, all the land was restored to the rightful owners. All debts were canceled and all slaves were set free every 50 years as like a reboot of the system. Yeah. Right. And corners of the land were always left like fallow and like left on, you know, harvested so that the immigrant and the poor could come and actually benefit of that portion. Yeah. You know? While making sure the earth it's, had enough stuff. Exactly. As well. Yeah. And they, their whole system, like they would, they would alter. They would allow certain fields to rest every. I think it was every seven years, and stuff like that, right? And it's so cool because, like, one of the first things Jesus does when he comes in his ministry is he quotes from the. He rolls, opens a scroll, and he basically says he declares the year of the Lord's favor, mm-hmm. and says like today the scripture has been fulfilled. He is the year of the Lord's favor is just a fancy way of saying the year of jubilee. Hmm. Right. And Jesus is coming and saying, he's pronouncing the year of Jubilee, but he's saying it's here, but all the time. He's like, instead of it just being every 50 years, it's now and it's, it's happening and it's in our midst and it's to continue, Mm -hmm. you know, and that I think at the heart is what the early Christian movement, like the early followers of the way were really embodying. Like when you look at acts and how they shared everything in common, how they, all those, all those things, that's what they were doing. They were embodying this practice of Jubilee. Yeah. And embodying this practice of equality. For mm-hmm. all. Exactly. It really brings us back to the fact that if we can recognize the inherent worth, the I am in every single person, regardless of mm-hmm. economic status, skin color, political views, yeah. like so many of our problems would dissipate. Yeah, because we were absolutely holding these hierarchical systems that keep one above the other at the cost of the one below. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and there's so that's... like, that's why I'm just so enthralled by the story, right? It's like, oh, you just shake it up a little bit and you start, you kind of see what's beneath the surface. And it's like, there's so, like, it just speaks so strong. It's like, I, I almost breathe a big sigh of relief when I, you know, when I, when I, certainly when I discovered that I was like, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, this is like, this is in the Bible. <laughs> like what? <laughs> like, I've never heard this my whole life. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it like certain systems. So it's good to keep it hidden. Exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah.
sharing this time with me and talking and sharing your wisdom and your experience and really modeling what it means to uplift the voices of the oppressed and check our own privileges in a healthy mm-hmm. way. Do you have any closing statements you want to say and then plug your, your Instagram accounts or TikTok, Facebook, whatever uh, closing. people can find you and follow your content? I guess for anyone who's kind of like, this is new information to them or this is like a little bit jarring, you know, like, yes, <laughs> I see you, yeah. you know, that's, uh, it is, there's a lot there. I know we've probably touched a lot of things that might be confusing, might be, um, scary. <laughs> like what is going on? Um, yeah, you're not alone. There are a ton of resources available out there for anyone who is searching, anyone who wants more information. Um, yeah, there's there's a growing number of people who are moving away from mainstream evangelicalism, toxic Christianity. There's a there's a a large community, and we're a lot easier to find now. Mm-hmm. Ain't that the truth? Would you recommend a good starting place if, say, they do want to look at more resources or find something that might help them mm. in this path? I mean, to help them in this path, yeah. Uh, ooh, so many resources. Yeah. <laughs> I know one that um, for me is the Liturgist podcast. Yes, I love love them. Richard Rohr that you mentioned, he's like yeah one white Catholic dude I can trust. <laughs> yeah, he's he's awesome as well. Yeah. Um, there's a book called, uh, how the Bible actually works by Pete ends that I highly recommend. Um, he was featured actually on the liturgist podcast. I think the second podcast episode ever was him on the Bible (laughs) and, uh, he's, yeah, his book on the Bible is, is really, really helpful in better understanding what the purpose of the Bible is and how we should read it. Um, also his podcast, um, the Bible for normal people is a really, really good resource. They feature some of the best scholars and academics, including some of the names I've mentioned, such mm-hmm. as Walter Brueggemann, um, Richard Rohr is featured. There's others as well. Um, but it's a fantastic podcast. I highly recommend as well. Awesome. And how can people find you if they want to follow your content? Yeah. If they want to follow me, I'm on Instagram. Um, it's at the underscore decolonized underscore Christian. And then I have a blog post or a blog site, just, uh, the, de- the decolonized Christian.com. And I, I have only a few blog posts on there. It's kind of a recent thing I've done, but yeah, that's uh, where you can find me. Awesome. I really appreciate you spending this hour with me and sharing your wisdom. It was wonderful. Well, thank you. And then likewise, thank you, Rachel, for featuring me. Yeah, thank you. We will probably talk again in the future because our paths are very ironically entwined. Yeah, please, please, anytime. I'd love to chat. Put under the wave. Now on surfing the break. Thank you for listening to that episode of the Deconstruction Podcast. I hope it caused you to think and stretch and grow. I know I was challenged in a lot of ways and just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. 
The music at the beginning of this podcast was Land of Pleasure by Sticky Fingers, and the interlude was another episode by Sticky Fingers. I would like to thank my life partner, Jonathan, for his undying support and adoration, (laughs) but mostly support in this podcast. I couldn't do it without him listening to every episode before release it and offering so much positive feedback. Shout out to my biggest fan, Naomi Spiker, who listens to every episode unprompted. I adore you. And until next time, my friends, keep thinking about your growth.